Tuesday is April 24th, 2012. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Eric Jarvis, who is an investigator at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and an associate professor of neurobiology at Duke University Medical Center. Uh, his lab uses an integrative approach combining molecular, anatomical, physiological, and behavioral techniques to study the neural mechanisms of vocal learning in the avian song system. So I know you have a complicated... Hi, Eric. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hello. Hi. So you have a complicated list of affiliations. I'm going to give it to you to right. plug them all. Right. Well, um, as you just said, you know, we, we take an integrative approach, and my primary appointment is in the neurobiology department at Duke University, but I also have affiliations in computational biology and bioinformatics, uh, cell biology and psychology uh, programs, as well as cognitive neuroscience. I mean, that's a separate uh, group altogether. Do you have to go to faculty meetings with all those? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> Train uh, all those students. Uh, yeah, I I can go to faculty meetings for all of them. They would welcome my uh, presence, but I don't. Uh, otherwise, I'd be too busy doing a lot of administration. So. Uh, the things that I do most for all those departments is one is train graduate students from each of them uh, and also uh, help out with their uh, graduate student recruitment and attend, you know, you know yearly uh, sort of parties, like for Christmas party or something Just like going that. Just go into the party. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Faculty meetings are like parties. <laughs> right. okay. this department. Or rumbles. I don't know. They're so enjoyable. Right. <laughs> Okay, so uh, around the room, as you've all heard probably already, is Todd Troyer. Hello. And Fidel Santa Maria. Hi, how are you, Tom? Nicole Witcha. Hi. Charlie Wilson. Hi. And me, I'm your host, Selma Qureshi. So there, there are three kind of general things I want to touch on today w- with, um, with you, Eric. I'd like to talk about your work on the origins of vocal learning, which I guess is important to add here is the critical behavioral substrate for the human capacity for spoken language. Second, I'd like to talk a little bit about what's in a name and how um, it can shape thinking uh, and propel or hinder research, and that's based on your work with the uh, avian brain nomenclature forum. And then third, I think it would be great to get get into some of the exciting new work uh, from your lab that's about to hit the press concerning vocal communication in um, another mammalian species that may surprise some of our listeners. So first, so the... Origins of vocal learning. So you've proposed a motor theory of the origins of vocal learning in which the CNS pathways that control vocal learning evolved out of a pre-existing motor system that originally segregated movement areas from from motor learning areas. And I tend to overstate things always, so feel free to correct me. Everyone does. so the idea here is that the difference between vocal learners like us and non-learners like um, you know non-human primates uh, is 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 that there's a functional connection in the learners between forebrain motor learning pathways and brainstem vocal motor uh, control areas that allows for learning circuits or that allowed for learning circuits to colonize and control areas that were previously um, used for just innate vocalizations, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and then this connection is found kind of evolutionarily in distant species, right? Um, so could you flesh some of this out for us experimentally and maybe comment on why this connection between brainstem and forebrain motor system seems to have occurred independently at least two to three times over the course of evolution, but didn't develop more ubiqui- ubiquitously across the Right, right. Okay, so let's see. Those, those are several questions, and I'll try to answer them. One is, uh, get into it. you know, what, what led us to these discoveries? And what are the differences between species that can imitate or not? And then the other is sort of how did that come about, you know, in thousands of years of evolution? And so um, uh, when I first started uh, studying these brain pathways, as Todd Troyer knows in this field, uh, um, we 
there's a specialized set of uh, nuclei in the songbird brain, like a uh, zebra finch, canary, mockingbird, that uh, connects to brainstem centers that control vocalizations. And these specialized forebrain areas are broken down into two pathways, one that controls the actual production of learned vocalizations, and the other that controls their acquisition or learning. And we, um, <clears throat> when I say we, me and the students I was working with, wanted to know whether or not other species that can imitate have something different or not. And not many people in our field were studying other species besides humans. Um, and what we knew about humans, they weren't paying attention to the songbird data either. Um, um, and I think that's just a human bias. You know, you don't pay attention to another species other than the one you're working with, particularly if it's human. Um, and so, and songbirds just seem too far away. So what, so take, taking it from there, uh, use a molecular mapping approach called uh, what I call behavioral molecular mapping. That the, you know, these immediate early genes in the brain, they're sensitive to neural activity. When an animal's performing a behavior, the expression of those genes go up like an MRI signal in the brain. We use that approach to try to identify vocal learning brain areas in other species, hummingbirds and parrots. And these are the only two other known vocal learning species uh, besides songbirds in the bird world. And there are roughly 28 orders or so of birds. And those three groups, songbirds, hummingbirds, and parrots, are thought not to be closely related to each other, or at least the hummingbirds. Now parrots and songbirds, people think there might be some close relationship. And we found that in all seven, I mean, all the, sorry, three of those species, there were seven brain nuclei that made up these two pathways. And all, in the, and without an exception. And uh, the motor pathway that produced the learned vocalizations could, made a direct projection down to the motor neurons for vocalizations, and, and called the uh, 12th motor neurons in birds or nucleus ambiguous in humans. So we had this very similar pathway in species that are separated by 30 to 60 million years from a common ancestor, and you can't find them in other, other species that are, don't produce the learned vocalizations. Then I made a lot of comparative analysis to brain pathways and cell types in mammals and the human brain for speech and find that humans also have a similar neural network structure as these three vocal learning bird groups. And so uh, when we proposed uh, these similarities, you know, people accepted it to a certain degree. And a lot of theories came up as to how that came about. One was... Um, Maybe everybody has it. It's just really amplified in these species or just missed in the other species. Um, or um, uh, you know, maybe it really is independently evolved by chance multiple times like this. And another one was even intelligent design. Actually, when we published this, uh, uh, I got a lot of uh, emails and letters in the mail because it, it got into the press uh, uh, saying that this helps prove the existence of God because how could this happen three independent times amongst birds and also be similar to human pathways for speech. And so I didn't have an answer until a few years ago uh, when, in some accidental discovery of uh, you know, looking for brain areas that control movement. Uh, and we found that uh, in these vocal learning birds, these seven brain nuclei were embedded within uh, seven brain areas that were activated during movement, uh, learning how to hop or fly, and I don't want to say learning, we think learning, but certainly moving in, a new, in new situations uh, in uh, you know, their feet, their limbs, and so forth. And the brain areas that 
that were activated during movements were, had similar connectivity as the brain areas of the Song's learning system. And not only that, you can find them in the non-vocal learning species that can imitate. And so this and a, a whole series of experiments led me to the hypothesis that, that perhaps the brain areas for vocal learning emerged out of, the, of a pre-existing system controlling learned movement. And we call this a deep homology, like the evolution of wings. Uh, that um, <clears throat> the upper limbs have um, been used, or let's say evolved, to become wings in distantly related species, birds, fl bats, ancient flying dinosaurs, uh, amongst vertebrates. And each time it was the upper limbs, not one on the head, one on the foot. And so here you have an ancient brain pathway, the motor pathway for learning how to walk, learning how to fly, learning how to do sign language, now becomes usurped uh, for the uh, vocal learning. And that, that's, it's a hand-waving uh, idea. And you know, when we published this, we, some one reviewer says, well, propose a mechanism of how that could occur. So they wanted me to speculate further. I didn't have one, but I have one now. And what I think is ha what could have happened is that during embryonic development, the vertebrate brain in general, not just you know, birds or humans, but the vertebrate brain, uh, I think is uh, forming multiple motor learning pathways hooked up with sensory information in parallel that consists of a motor projection to the brainstem and an anterior pathway we call cortical basal ganglionothalamic loops. Right? And that these uh, are forming in parallel to control different motor neuron groups that will eventually be used for motor learning. And what I think has happened in us humans and in these songbirds, even though our cortical brain structure is different, is that this pathway has duplicated one more time during embryonic development and now connected itself to the vocal organs. And, uh, and that's how you then emerge a similar pathway uh, multiple times with these seven brain structures or different cortical areas uh, for vocal learning. So it just seems like the, the, the key thing, then the, the key question is, so this just seems like it's like, a, you know, all, all the movement is like that. I mean, lots of animals have to adjust their movements for mm -hmm. lots of stuff, right? Because mm -hmm. you have learned movements. It's not like they don't learn their movements and mm -hmm. stuff. So the key question is how and maybe how the, I mean, the thing about vocal learners, right, is the imitation and the whole social aspect of the learning. Mm -hmm. And so you have this learned behavior to learn how to move and self-adjust and react to the environment and get better and coordinate for lots of motor things. Right. And then you have to inject that as it's particular about lots of species, about the vocal aspects right. of this social imitation thing gets somehow injected and takes off. Right. right. And that's, I guess, the spark of why. And if you have the same basic circuitry, I guess, then whenever that happens, right, right. it's going to take its form of what's ever there for everything else. Right. Is that, is that roughly the idea? Yeah, so, 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 so I guess Todd can speak to this since you're, you're in the songbird world. I mean, asking uh, some questions that have underlying meanings is, right, is what, what seems to happen in, in the vocal learning species is that they do take off with their vocalizations and use it for uh, complex communication. We do for language, but most of them do it for uh, sexual competition or territorial defense, uh, whether it be, um, uh, it's not clear, but maybe in the whales, whales are vocal learners, or in the songbirds. And um, 
I mean, I, what I hear your question getting to is why, and what you asked earlier is why is it so rare? And what, is, it, is it really like other systems of the body? So I'll answer that second question first. I actually really think this behavior we're doing now, this communication, uh, is like other behaviors. It's like the things like you're learning how to play the piano. And even the idea of the motor theory being linked to a motor pathway, if you notice that when I'm talking now, the, the listeners can't see this, all right? But as I'm talking, I'm moving my hands. When Todd asked his question to me, he was also moving his hands. We gesture all the time when we uh, produce a, a, our speech. Uh, not every single word in every single sentence gets a gesture, but it's, it's there and it's a learned gesturing. The movements that I make with my hands is in English, learned gesturing. Italians do it differently, Spanish do it differently. And so uh, that led to a theory of motor theory of uh, uh, speech uh, gestures, where um, that is the brain areas used to gesture are somehow intertwined with the brain areas used for speech. And you can find that there, when you, one, one is lesion, the other is affected. So I think it is. Uh, I think speaking is basically another simple motor behavior. I won't say simple, but at least another behavior like the other brain systems. And what's unusual is why isn't it more common? If, if learning how to walk and learning how to fly, even doing sign language in chimpanzees and other primates, is possible. Why isn't vocal learning more possible? So here's another hand-waving hypothesis. Um, <clears throat> it seems to be the case that most vocal learners are, are at the top of the food chain uh, or at, are at, um, in, at least in, amongst mammals. The, let's say the complex vocal learners, humans, whales, and dolphins, and elephants, okay, and bats. But bats, their learned vocalizations are in the ultrasonic range. So a lot of species can't hear them. Um, and amongst birds, parrots are pretty good at escaping predators and so forth. They're, you know, they're pretty intelligent, as we, if you want to word, use the word intelligence. And so you think, well, what is the learned vocalizations being used for, putting those two ideas together? In most of these species, it's not what we're doing now, which is talking for abstract communication. Most of the time, they're using to attract mates. And so... I'm listening to a, a song sparrow one day and uh, listening on the top of a tree at Duke University and he's singing uh, and, you know, singing a song, something like this over and over and over again. And I habituate to it. And eventually he switches uh, his uh, song and another 10 minutes later he goes, something like this. And I look up again and now I can see this bird advertising himself to the mate. Look at me, look at me. I'm going to change my song over and over again. Look at me, pay attention to me. I'm the good mate. And I can stay alive and keep switching my song and nobody recognize me and eat me off. And so what I think is happening is that vocal learners are, um, that they are using their learned sounds to get attention of the conspecifics, okay? But they're also bringing attention to the predators and they're being eaten off. And this is preventing it from evolving uh, so much. And uh, some ex you know, sort of semi-experimental support for this, some going on a long answer here, but uh, <clears throat> is that a colleague of mine, he studied Bengalese finches, uh, that you were talking about studying Todd as well. Uh, he has found that Bengalese finches have been kept in captivity in Asia for the last 250 years. Right? And they've been bred for their plumage characteristics, but not for their songs. 
their wild type counterpart, the Munia Finch, um, sings a much more stereotype song than the domesticated Bengalese Finch, which is more varied, uh, more complex. You would think it would be the other way around. An animal kept in captivity, a species kept in captivity for so many years, would be impoverished with its vocal repertoire. Then he found that the female wild birds and the female domesticated ones all preferred the domesticated songs. Right? So if you give them a choice in the speakers. And so what he also independently came to the idea was maybe the predators are picking off the birds who are producing the more complex songs, even amongst these vocal learners. Um, and so, um, <clears throat> so we think, you know, at least maybe you could evolve vocal learning naturally in the lab. You just let sexual selection take over. So how much of it has to do with this argument that it's the, the physiological ability to produce the song? Or, or what do you think came first, I guess? It's, um, the mm-hmm. larynx, the, the, the change, evolutionary change, and the ability to produce sounds. I mean, that's part of the... the um, the inability of other species to produce complex uh, learned sounds is that they just can't produce them, is that yeah. they can't make them. Yeah, so for a long time, uh, back in the 30s to 60s, uh, 1930s to 1960s, it was thought that, um, that the difference for humans and non-human primates and their ability to produce speech was the length of the larynx descended in the, in the, uh, you know, the uh, vocal tract, or uh, the trachea. Um, <clears throat> And uh, uh, since then, though, uh, a number of people, Tecumseh Fitch in particular, has shown that there are many animals that can lengthen their, uh, their laryngeal uh, distance from the throat. That is, the further down the larynx sits in the throat, the, the, high, the greater number of different sounds you can produce. But he discovered that there are other species out there, not the chimpanzee, that have lowered larynxes, and they don't seem to have vocal learning or this diversity of sounds. Uh, so I, I'm pretty much convinced that that theory is out the door. Uh, another example of it is uh, songbirds have seven muscles, one of the most complex larynxes out there, uh, compared to other bird species. Parrots have uh, like three muscles, or very simple larynxes. Uh, and you know, some argue how many muscles it really is, but it's a lot more simpler than a songbird. Many parrots can imitate human speech quite fine, you know, for you know vocabulary of anywhere from ten to a thousand words. Depend, you know, there's one parakeet that was famous for imitating close to a thousand words, and so um, <clears throat> so the peripheral structure doesn't seem to be important. What seems to be important is what clearly is there is either the presence or absence of a forebrain network that connects to the lower motor neurons in the brainstem. Uh, for uh, to control vocal behavior. And so if I was an anatomist okay. looking mm-hmm. for that, mm-hmm. well, uh, where would I look? So the, the, the motor cortex representation w- might not be there or would be there? In right. So, so I'm presenting to you the black and white view now, right? And the last project you asked me to talk about, we'll come to it. it I, it's not so black and white. So let me just give you the quick black and white view and then what I think could really be going on. The black and white view is you have it or you don't have it, all right? And where you have it is in the primary motor cortex is one location. Uh, so in the bird equivalent, we call this uh, song nucleus RA. These are the neurons that make the cortical uh, spinal projections, basically, that synapse directly onto the lower motor neurons. So layer five, if I had to predict where it's going to be, because we don't, can't study that well in humans, 
in oral facial motor cortex or laryngeal motor cortex of humans. There'll be layer five neurons that make a direct projection to nucleus ambiguous. Those neurons are said not to exist in a non-human primate or a rodent or any other species. But the layer five neurons that project to the lips or the jaw muscles or the hands and so forth do exist. Okay, uh, and uh, those that direct projection and those layer five neurons are connected with cortical basal ganglia loops, including premotor cortical areas. That that's what you need for motor learning, and you need sensory input to, to do that. So as long as you don't have that projection and the direct projection, you're going to get mostly reflexive innate type of behavior. So, of course, if the motor cortex representation mm-hmm. isn't mm-hmm. there, then all of that basal ganglia loop that depends on that connection wouldn't be there either. So, basically, that whole circuit would be... Y- yes and no, except there, there's one uh, view that's coming to light, or let's say being proposed recently from uh, Christi- Christina Simonian, who was uh, um, a, uh, a postdoc for Uwe Jurgens, who studied uh, these pathways in non-human primates for many years. And what she has argued is that non-human primates, not other mammals, but non-human primates have a laryngeal motor cortex, but it's in the premotor cortex, all right, where you would expect uh, either Broca's area to be located or slightly uh, caudal to that. And this, this area makes an indirect projection to nucleus ambiguous. It goes to the reticular formation around the motor neurons, and that reticular formation then projects into motor neurons. The issue there is that if you lesion this area in a non-human primate, um, nothing happens to the vocalizations. Uh, And it is active. It does show uh, some neural activity with vocalizations, but only in particular contexts. So a monkey, this was published in PLUS One last year, uh, a a macaque uh, will uh, learn to make a vocalization with a food reward. This area will show premotor activity before the vocalization is produced when the animal is grabbing the food. Okay? But if he was to make that same call in another context, the area is silent. So it's not like primary motor cortex. So, and what but some of the circuit is there and ready. It's just waiting for that. I, I don't know about this. But, but, <laughs> she, but she, she and I, we really debate about this heavily, right? Uh, she argues that the uh, this premotor cortex region, or she proposes, or she does not swearing this happens, proposes that during the evolution of spoken language, it moved from premotor cortex into the primary motor cortex, and then its layer five neurons simultaneously made a direct projection. And all the other circuit is already there, like the, uh, you know, the, the striatal connection, the thalamic connection, the basal ganglion loop. So that's her, that's her hypothesis. I think that um, <clears throat> it's not a black and white world. I think uh, these brain pathways might be existing there to, in a rudimentary fashion, maybe one, five, ten neurons, and just not be utilized heavily. And what's happened in humans and in these song learning birds is that these pathways that allow small modifications have been amplified and become prominent in the vocal learning species probably for the same reasons of sexual selection or predation. But so some yeah. other question is that I think they're getting at the question of the reason 
for for doing that. So one of the mm-hmm. things in the primates, it, uh, where they use their vocalization, they use them a lot socially, right? Mm-hmm. So and they're regulated for a lot of, of social interactions mm-hmm. uh, that are, are the repertoire is innate, but they're regulated highly for social interactions, right? Uh, not just sexual selection, for right. A lot of dominance kinds That's of things, right. right? Right. And in songbirds, then you. They have sexual selection, and you have to broadcast things where it's hard to see them, uh, and, and a lot of foliage, especially right. the parrots and so forth. And the the vocal learners with the aquatic mammals and the bats, they they have a completely different purpose, and a completely different. But they have their they use their vocalization for echolocation, which is a a a, com, a, a very important task. That's not part of this this thing, right? And so the question of how this you connect these things up to the right places to actually get vocal uh, communication may have the push to have those things in the right places maybe for different reasons uh, it, it could be except I mean the echolocation uh, calls you know so you know, animals bouncing the sounds off a wall to be able to see the wall with the auditory system that that um that that is learned as well but the but the actual vocalizations in the bat were, that were originally discovered to be learned are these ultrasonic well echolocation because ultrasonic as well but were more like what they're now considering like courtship songs. Yeah, but so bat. which came, so which came first, right? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Well, the the, the only thing I I this is hand waving, but the only reason why I think uh, sexual selection use of of learned vocalizations came first is because all vocal learners use. Uh, learn sounds for that purpose, including, I mean, you can think of humans, Ricky Martin, Jennifer Lopez, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know most, kind of, but most species use a lot of things for sexual selection. They, and, and, and they do, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, they do. Uh, but I, you don't, so you don't find a zebra finch or a canary using its learned sounds to communicate, you know, sort of some more abstract uh, vocalizations. Uh, but a dolphin... Uh, you will, if you believe the data, you'll f- uh, find them using what they call signature whistles to call each other by names. You know, if, if, so it could be a matter of distance. That, uh, I mean, matters of where these animals live. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, I mean, there's some hypothesis of why bipedalism arose in uh, eastern parts of Africa as the continent became flatter, and, right. and, and our ancestors had to move longer distance and. And the same thing could be uh, could be for uh, talking, right? They right. had to communicate and then um, come up with something that was not a stereotypical song. So I, pr- I propose saber tooth. Yeah. So I, I did propose another alternative hypothesis: is that uh, well, humans evolved in the East African Rift Valley, if we believe the, the fossil mm-hmm. and the genetic data, and uh, one of the Leakey's Leakey's sons proposed at the time. That uh, the reason why human behavior is complex is because they had an environment that was quite diverse, uh, that went from tropics to savanna to coastline, all within a several hundred mile radius. And if you look at vocal learners, vocal learners could adapt their sounds to different environments, low foliage, high up in the trees, you know, tundra and so forth. Whereas non-learners, if you look at their vocal, their, their acoustic structure of their vocalizations, non-learning species, their sounds communicate best in the particular environment they are living in. Right. So, if, yeah, if the environment is forcing you to communicate in a diverse acoustic 
space. Right. That might be another sexual. Because like, now that you were talking, I didn't know about this um, uh, echolocation and, and sound um, uh, in in uh, bats. But it seems very similar to what happens with uh, Amazonian river electric fish. Yeah. Right. I mean, they they communicate with their pulses, right, and they go into different frequencies to tell other males do not get too close to me, right? I right. Mean, if they're in the same frequency, they identify that and they change to a different frequency right. up or down and That's they right. communicate. I mean, they, there seems to be some some type of communication. I don't know I don't know if it is learned. Yeah. But, but it's there. So right. that's exploring mice or mice playing with bats? <laughs> so this, this is great. So let's okay. skip. Let's. I'm going to stay, stay on communication okay. here and take the liberty of skipping to item number three here. Why don't you, why don't you talk to us a little sense. bit about that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so we've just been talking about pretty much the published world of science right now. And, uh, you know, so what, what is out there that's not published and, and some stuff that we have on mice, right? But sort of even more, you know, let's talk about our basic assumptions. I, I, what I've been learning is that we're looking at things black and white, as I said earlier. And uh, my goal, my dream project has been to uh, find the convergent molecular changes in humans and song learning birds and take those genes, you know, if they're really convergent. Uh, we can do transgenic manipulations on mice, uh, uh, transgenically put them into the mouse genome and make a mouse a vocal learner. Okay, that, you know, with this direct projection, right? Exactly. That's my. If I can achieve that, okay, I'll move on from something else in science. That was my goal. So, uh, so we got some money to do some pie in the sky kind of research, and I was, you know, you know, I and everybody else there out there saying mice are not vocal learners, right? And so I put that in my papers too. Then Tim Holly uh, from Washington University, Washington University of Washington, came out with a paper claiming that mice have these ultrasonic songs. That, that when you pitch down to the human hearing range, sound like songbird songs. And so to put the bug in my head and other people's heads, maybe mice could be vocal learners, or to a certain degree. And then I look in the literature, and I'm looking for all the quotations that people made, citations that people said mice are not vocal learners. Uh, and including myself, none of us had citations to a prior literature <laughs> that, uh, that indicated what, what they are. And so that I dug in, in the, the to try to figure this out, but along with other people are doing it as well. And a graduate student of mine, uh, Gustu, Gustu Ariaga, you know, we, we basically asked a bunch of questions about the brain and the behavior. Uh, and, and to make a long story short, we found layer five neurons in primary motor cortex uh, that is in a region active, high, you know, with vocalizing driven gene expression in these mice uh, that makes a direct projection to the lower motor neurons uh, for uh, uh, the, to the brainstem that control vocalizations. A difference is that it's a sparse projection. The mice have about one to two axons per motor neurons, whereas songbirds have tens, if not hundreds, of connections per motor neurons. And the little data that's out there for humans from from oral facial cortex to ambiguous, also there are many axons. Right. Another thing we found is that mice. Um, we were trying to see if they could imitate anything. We were doing all kinds of experiments. We weren't seeing changes in their ultrasonic songs. Um, but then we found one condition where the mice vocalizations were changing. We found one, a, a male of one strain was producing his, his ultrasonic syllables, uh, this courtship vocalizations, at a higher pitch than the other strain. So we had C57s and black sixes. And, 
we found that if we paired the two males up together, but in the presence of a female, because that's who they like to sing to, um, what happened is that one of the males, over the course of four to eight weeks, shifted the pitch to match the cage mate of the other male, to match exactly his pitch, not the pitch of some other male in some other cage, right? And it was always the, the smaller male, where we think the, dom the subordinate male matching the pitch of the dominant male. Uh, and so we had evidence of pitch imitation here. Uh, we, we couldn't find evidence of what we call repertoire composition imitation, or, and we don't know yet sequencing or, 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 or what we call a, you know, like to call syntax with meaning or without meaning. And so, um, so we have evidence of limited imitation uh, in these mice. Uh, and then finally, another experiment that we did is deafen the animals. So in humans and in song-learning birds, if we become deaf, our speech or the bird song deteriorates over time. Uh, and so we call this deaf-induced deaf vocal deterioration disorder. Uh, and we deafened the mice, and this doesn't happen in non-human primates, supposedly, or non-vocal learning species. We deafened the mice, and we found some deterioration. Not dramatic, but some. Uh, and one more experiment we did. In, uh, in humans and songbirds, if you lesion the primary motor cortex with these layer 5 neurons, or the RA nucleus, what happens is that the, uh, we lose the ability to produce speech. It's not even aphasia speech. We just can't speak. Speak. We have crying, screaming, ah, innate sounds, but our birds, the alarm calls, but not the uh, song. Um, <clears throat> when we lesion this motor cortex region in mice, unlike humans, they could still produce their ultrasonic song. So that was different. But something did change. The songs became a lot more varied. They were not controlled, basically. Uh, so the fundamental frequency was varying all over the place compared to the motor cortex intact animals. So what we think is that there's this motor cortex region that is having some control, but not complete control, over the uh, vocalizations of the mice, and perhaps even for learning. That, that's what we're going to test next. So my new hypothesis out of all of this is that vocal learning is not dichotomous. The world's not black and white. Uh, it's not that we have these complex humans with this complex spoken language and nobody else has it. Uh, what I think is happening is, is that there's a continuum. Yes, there could be the case, the presence or absence of a motor cortex region that controls learning vocalizations. Uh, and then once you get that cortical region, you can have a sparse projection that controls limited uh, modification of vocalizations or this heavy-duty projection uh, network, as you find in humans and song learning birds, that controls the more complex imitated vocalizations. So would that be reflected in the syntax? What is the syntactic content of the mouse's call? Is it so that that's that's a, a big open question now because what's interesting is that the mouse vocalizations are even more varied than many of the songbirds we see, even without the motor even with the motor cortex input, uh, and so and there there is structure there you know from one syllable type to the next. Uh, you, can, you can fit a Markov-like analysis to it that suggests some type of structural rules. But it, it, it's so much more varied that uh, the tools we use to analyze regular zebra finch or canary song don't apply to it. Um, it. It's more like what we see in some parrot species when they produce their warbled song, where nobody has really been able to find a finite state syntax. 
So do you, okay. think, do you think the principle of the Bengalese finch uh, applies here? It's more, it's, it's even further varied than a Bengalese finch. Huh. That's right. So you, you, have you looked at any non-inbred, uh, more outbred, I guess, species? for I've, any? Yes, so uh, that's interesting, coming back to my original hypothesis about predators and so forth. So we, these are laboratory mice, mm -hmm. all right? I, I've, I've heard two different situations, but the one that I believe most is that the non-inbred, so the wild-type, real wild mice, seem to be more stereotyped than the laboratory-bred mice. So one hypothesis that I'm working on is maybe the females in Jackson Labs, you know, for many generations have been selecting for some kind of uh, variability <laughs> to pay attention, you know? <laughs> Something to break up the monotony. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, so this is how... how Known, commonly known, was that mice communicated ultrasound, ultrasonic. Uh, so, so it was, it was commonly known. Well, it, it, I won't say it was commonly known, but it was known for many years. I forget since uh, the bat detector was invented mm -hmm. uh, in the what, I don't know the fifties or so, or even, I, I don't know when it was invented. It was invented in nineteen hundreds, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, mid nineteen hundreds or so. Uh, it was later discovered that mice and some other species produce these free things up in the 50 to kilohertz range. We can hear up to about 14 kilohertz mm -hmm. on average. So the reason I ask is, is it possible that there's just other species that we don't know have this complex song or complex learning because we don't we haven't gone to that range That's, yet? I think it is possible, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, so why, why, why go up in that range? Maybe they're avoiding the predators and then they can create complexity. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's possible that the more vocal learners out there to various degrees that we just don't know about. They make those ultrasound noise generators to like keep the rodents out of your barn and that sort of thing. Right. right. As far as I know, those don't work at all. That's what I've heard. Right. That's a new one. Right. Start attracting a lot of female rodents. <laughs> right, right. So I, I would have to say that I don't think th this idea is going to be accepted that easily. I mean, we we've submitted this paper already once to you know, you know, one of these, you know, highly visible journals. It got reviewed, and the reviewers had a hard time. Uh, one, one, one said, basically, said, uh, I, I'm not sure I should trust the prior primate data. You know, I trust your data, but I don't trust the prior primate work, right? Yeah. So therefore, the way you're presenting the past literature is more of a, a farce, you know, the, you know, that kind of stuff, you know. But, but I think over time, you know, we're, we're going to be, you know, stop thinking about the world in a black and white fashion. Well, what if it, if it is a module that then, depending on the evolutionary pathway, connects to either vocal or to more facial or to more hands or like lizards that use yeah. some flaps to communicate, and that's their that's their language, right? And then yeah. it just becomes a more abstract. Just so, so I like to think of modules that are presence or absence, and, and it is a case in the birds, I, in a chicken and pigeons, the non-vocal learning birds. We haven't found even a sparse projection, mm. you know. So. Uh, so it does seem to be modular, black and white there. But, um, you know, we haven't looked carefully enough yet. And, and so, so thinking about this, another hypothesis out there is that the difference between a human and a non-human primate is this arcuate fasciculus projection from the auditory cortex to brokers or, let's say, yeah. motor areas that control speech. And non-human primates, there's a debate out there, don't have it or humans do, or if non-human primates have it, it's, it's an indirect pathway. Mm -hmm. All right, and so this is sort of a more modular kind of idea. Um, 
in the mice, we found a direct projection from the auditory cortex to these motor regions that control the vocalizations, or at least modulate the vocalizations. Saving you the time, do you yeah, have that, to do the... Uh, no, no. So, mice, no right. so, so, so what we have found, we, we're now looking at the molecular properties, we, we find in songbirds and in humans, uh, uh, we're doing some comparative high-throughput gene expression data from microarrays in, in the cortical regions of humans and, and songbirds. And we found that um, there are molecular differences in the songbird RA nucleus that, or um, the human oral facial cortex that you don't find in uh, a pigeon or a non-human primate brain of some genes. And they happen to be axon guidance molecules right. and, okay. and genes involved uh -huh. in neural protection. Uh -huh. All right? And we're starting to look at in these, in these neurons in the mouse to see if they have the human expression pattern mm -hmm or let's say a pigeon expression pattern. Guess what? They have the pigeon expression pattern, mm -hmm. right? Um, <clears throat> but uh, I, I think it's more of a degree rather than an absolute difference. But yeah, that, what I mean by module is like you have connections that then they get biased to the, I mean, this is vocal, one yeah. is vocal, one will be hand-waving. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, German ah. style, another one will be... Uh, would you call those style. modules or you call well, those parallel pathways that are... Okay, parallel pathways. Yeah, I would... I, I would that's, that's what I'm leaning okay, yeah, towards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they're parallel okay, pathways. Yes, yes. So, so, so in that sense, yes, there is a, let's say, a motor learning module of the forebrain. Mm -hmm. And the songbird song system mm -hmm. is basically a, mo a motor learning module that's adjacent to an... A parallel module that's controlling learn how to, learning how to fly. Right, that's what I meant by yeah. modules. Okay, yeah. we were yeah. just a little different in semantics. So, um, <laughs> you've said before that you don't. Uh, so in, in our field, and uh, I'm in language, and you're in more in the speech area, so it's taught. And in our fields, there tends to be this artificial separation between speech and language. You know, when I talk to speech pathologists, they're like, "Oh, I don't do language." You know, so this, like, this, this is Nicole, by the way. This right? is that, Nicole yes. speaking. <laughs> right. um, and so you've said before that you don't believe that that separation should be there. That that's it's, that, that it, what? That it shouldn't be there. That that separation between speech and language shouldn't exist. It, yes, it, it's right. one and the same, and it's it's all part of the same system, the same brain, yeah. which I agree with. And so I'm, I'm wondering then, in that continuum, how the difference between these vocal learners um, always comes down to, well, some of them are just vocal learning, some of them are expressing language, and that some yeah. of them is basically us. <laughs> so yeah. so how, how then do you see that separation coming from the similarities across the evolutionary principles of vocal learning itself through the motor learning? How do you evolve a meaningful, syntactic, rich language from that? Yeah, it's really a good question. Um, wow, loaded. I, I'll see if I can <laughs> hit each one of these quickly. One is, what, what, I've, what I've, I think uh, we humans have our own egos, and we inject things into our scientific discoveries or interpretations that not necessarily always have evidence, based on evidence. There's so many no. things out there. <laughs> I can't believe that. Yes, okay, yeah, you can't <laughs> believe that, right. There's so many things out there that even scientists will say are unique to humans uh, that no one has actually looked for in another animal, uh, and when you look, you actually discover it. For instance, uh, uh, other animals will even use innate vocalizations to have semantic communication. So a vervet monkey, uh, this is shown by the Cheneys, that they will uh, produce these innate vocalizations as young infants uh, to uh, all these different kinds of sounds 
to rocks on the ground to a tree or so forth and then learn through some type of associative learning with the adults that you produce this particular call to a snake and that's the alarm call for a snake. This is the alarm call for a, a, an eagle in the sky and have a semantic attachment to it. And so semantic communication was only thought to be unique to humans before that was discovered. And so, um, <clears throat> so I, so when I, that's one thing that causes me to think differently about this. Another is I find in the field of psychology, uh, a lot of behavioral terminology com comes up in linguistics as well. Uh, you know, um, recursiveness or, uh, or let's say, um, language separate from speech. All right. And when you look at people who studied language and separate from speech and start to look at the brain mechanisms, I'm, we're going to assume it's all going on in the brain now. Because I have this debate with linguists, right? They start to talk about things that don't conform with what the brain is doing. And they tell me, well, it's, it's still true because this is the way I can describe it theoretically. But I argue if the brain is not doing it that way, then this is a behavioral description that's abstract but is not actually mechanistic. But mechanistically, when you study the, even for complex syntax, the same brain areas that people say are controlling speech are the ones that are controlling the language, the spoken language. The only thing that I haven't resolved for myself in all this theory is whether or not the spoken language or speech brain pathways for communication, whether it be in the speech production, the auditory processing, or the link between the two, um, is that something that's special? in its, its function beyond heavy-duty, you know, pro direct projections to the motor neurons, or is the entire uh, forebrain of humans? Is there something special about our connectivity that makes everything that we do is special or more advanced than other animals? And that I haven't resolved for myself yet. I, I don't know. It's not a direct answer to your question. No, it's a but, good answer. Yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> so so the, these direct pathways, though, the this, this strength of the auditory system in, in, in the majority of the human population, mm -hmm. um, that's, the, that's the, the sense that we use. But, of course, uh, language is ex can be expressed in many other ways. It's not dependent on even a, you know, when you're born completely absent of these pathways. Right. Um, so at what point does that basic connection to the, to the motor system abstract out into a system that you can use through other senses. Right. So, so I, I do, I, I, I'd say I don't want to think black and white. I do think separate things sensory and motor in this sense. And so if you look at the sensory or the perceptual aspect of, of our communication behavior and behaviors in general, you'll find that the sensory complexity, perceptual complexity is more common amongst many species. So dogs can understand, sit, siente, say, come here, boy, fetch the newspaper. <laughs> you can teach dogs many, you know, you get to, some dogs under, understand in their, presumably their auditory cortex or their auditory <coughs> system, uh, uh, many uh, different human words, up to 400 or so. But they can't speak not a word. Maybe you can get a dog to almost say, I love you, you know, if you go to YouTube, right? <laughs> you don't spend enough time on YouTube, right, right, man. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in other motor domains, you can get dogs to do lots of different learned tricks in the circuits and so forth, a lot better what they can do with their vocalizations. Mm -hmm. So what's going on there? I think that they have a lot more similar connectivity in the auditory domain that we do. I think they have a Wernicke's-like area that's processing these uh, auditory sounds. But, but perhaps a very sparse projection like the mice to the motor neurons for vocal behavior, but a, a robust projection. 
to the to uh, the other motor neurons. And what you need to get this complex non-vocal behavior is a good cortical basal ganglion thalamic circuit connected to these motor neurons that then make the direct projection. So all that needs to be in there. So I think it's more of a degree in a motor and a sensory pathways. Does that help? Yeah. yeah. So it separates language from speech in a way. Right, because the dog understands a certain amount of human language. Yeah. He doesn't speak at all. So, so what I like to, what I, what I then separate is not language and speech, but perception of language and production of language. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, we have a few minutes left, and okay. I, I just want to hit that number two just slightly. Yes. Um, so okay. we can call it How many minutes we have? We have as much as you okay. want, actually. Right. Uh, we have actually ten minutes. Okay. So. Oh, I can do that. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> so basically, I just want to um, say that you, well, this has come up before, but, but it seems like we should bring it up with you, because you were at the helm of this avian uh, brain nomenclature mm-hmm. form. And it, it sought to reframe... Uh, some of the misunderstandings of functional organization and complexity of the avian brain and its evolutionary relationship to the mammalian brain. And so in the in the papers that, that came out of that process, the, um, it, it was apparent that the classical view of the avian brain was seen as impeding the field. So we're a decade down the line now. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about the impact of that forum and um, how... how how on how we think about the brain? Right, yes. Or yeah. specifically? But, well, I, I want to... Yeah, let me get to the decade and the time. Let me just actually give you a little segue into like what got me there, uh, because it's part of what I mentioned before about our egotistic views of ourselves. Um, and so at that time, I was a beginning new professor directly out of a postdoc uh, when I got involved in, in leading this effort, and uh, with Tony Reiner, a colleague of mine, who you know. Uh, um, and uh, <clears throat> I... Uh, you know, it was clear to me, well, what happened? Over 100 years ago, now 110 years ago, okay, uh, this new nomenclature at that time, in the early 1900s, late 1800s came out. Ludwig Enninger was trying to uh, do something that Einstein was doing for the brain, try to come up with a unified theory of brain organization, combining Darwin's view of evolution, uh, Aristotle's view of scale and natura, religion as well, even racism, you know. Where, or let's say ethnicity, they called it at the time, where argued that the brain evolved from lower species to higher species in sediment layers like the Grand Canyon and so <laughs> forth. Like, uh, and so you can find these paleocortical regions or these paleostriatum regions, meaning very old, at the base of the brain in fish. And they gave rise to new structure, archistriatum or archicortex, the hippocampus and so forth, the amygdala. Uh, into uh, 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 amphibians, and amphibians gave rise to a neostriatum. That's the name, that's where it came from, into reptiles. And then uh, and reptiles then passed this on to birds, and they called it hycostriatum. That's the new area in bird brain uh, for overgrown striatum. And then mammals evolved the latest and greatest achievement, which was the cortex, particularly the neocortex, for meaning new. And so mammals were the latest evolved species on the planet, which happens not to be true now. Actually, it turns out to be birds in terms of vertebrates. And so, um, and there's a lot of data over the, over the years since the early 1900s, but particularly beginning with Harvey Carton, which, who you know as well, right? Okay, yeah. Uh, who was Tony Reiner's uh, mentor, uh, came and showed that, uh, you know, that the basal ganglia actually in birds are not the whole, this whole forebrain area. So there was a lot of data built from the 19, let's say, 70s on and uh, that we knew was wrong and we couldn't figure out what was right. 
Uh, so I formed, and Tony Reiner formed a group of uh, scientists who fish, bird, amphibian, mammalian brain experts to come together to try to find out what the truth is. And we had a lot of debates. Nobody could agree. But we did come up with a solution uh, that we all could agree upon. And the way to make that happen, uh, Larry Swanson, who will be the uh, uh, president of the Society for Neuroscience in the coming year, uh, people told me I should get him involved because he was an expert in the history of neuroscience. And he says this has only worked once or twice in the history of neuroscience where community effort has changed something about brain terminology or understanding. I don't believe it's going to work. I'm not going to get involved. Uh, and that you know, scared my pants off. And so... <laughs> And so, I'm sure uh, he regrets what? What? I'm sure he regrets I, that. I, 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 I met him uh, a few weeks ago, actually, and he was telling me he was surprised at work. Right? <laughs> and so, um, so the way we got it to work is I you know, formed a website uh, where people can you know, freely upload their hypotheses in email groups. So you know, current media helped us. And anybody can join the conversation. Uh, and so for a two-year period, we had email communications and uh, debates and so forth amongst the comparative neurobiology community. And, and mostly, the, almost the entire avian neurobiology community was plugged in. And they were following all the debates. Uh, and, and we had a forum at Duke University at the end of that two-year period, a heavy-duty, uh, you know, you know, head-banging forum. You know, there's a common saying out there, a famous saying that, uh, scientists will rather use each other's toothbrush than share each, use each other's nomenclature. <laughs> you know, that's how married they are to that. And, and Carvey Harton was saying, names have profound meaning on the way, on the experiments we do and the science that we uh, believe in. Um, and so, um, <clears throat> so uh, you know, with all that as the background, what, I, what basically happened is that the entire community moved in this two-year period to accepting something. And so by the time we published the new nomenclature another year to two years later, after we ironed things out, everybody was dying to use it because they were already so convinced that the scale of natural view and Lewin editor and so forth was wrong. We just needed to have a consensus of what was right. It's incredible or, what happens when people start talking to each other. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and so then what ended up happening, what, what did we come up with? Right. So, so overnight, basically, everybody started using There were a few die, die, you know, diehards that didn't want to. Um, but that it's it's gone. The old nomenclature is gone, and I think it's having reverberations in other fields of neuroscience as well. So now I get called on to change in a community. I want to change the nomenclature for the Drosophila brain, right? <laughs> <You're> the cleaner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so the bird brain basically has uh, a large cortical-like territory, according to cortical-like, that takes up about seventy-five percent of its forebrain, as does the mammalian brain, the mammalian cortex. Uh, and it has a basal ganglia territory that takes up the other 30%. Uh, the basal ganglia organization, the pa globus pallidus and the striatum, is organized very similarly, not identically, but similarly to the mammalian brain, uh, with the exception that part of the avian striatum has globus pallidus cells buried in it, okay, or scattered throughout it, as opposed to being completely separate. Whereas in mammals, they seem to be completely separate, except for several papers I read, on the accumbens, it might have uh, globus pallidus type neurons in the accumbens as well. But the bird cortex-like area is nuclear in organization as opposed to layered. So instead of having six different layers, we have a roughly four different nuclear groups. How, it could be four to six, however you want to break it down. 
And, and this comes out of an idea Harvey Carton proposed long ago, that there, if you just take a paper, put it in layers, and then take those layers and ball them up, but maintain the connections, you get the bird brain. And the question is, what really came first, layers or clusters? And we don't really know. So we don't know what's the new organization. Um, it just seems as the mammalian brain came as a package. And I mean, the vertebrate brain came as a package. Cortex, striatum, and pallidum. And you can vary the organization of the cortex. Even fish have a different organization. But the basal ganglia organization has to stay that way. And so um, you get diverse cortical organizations can produce the same behavior, but the basal ganglia organization has to stay constant. And that's the lesson we learned out of that. Really important stuff, as yeah. you say the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I have a couple of esoteric questions okay. for you. Mm -hmm. I'll answer esoteric. quickly. All right. <laughs> uh, well, the first one I have is um, few, fewer people mm -hmm. uh, know about your uh, background as a dancer and your, your beginning as a dancer and that you've continued your, your career independent of your amazing career in science as a dancer. Um, I was wondering just... Your, how that influenced your understanding of motor learning, and yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let you go. Yeah, so it's true. Yeah, I went from ballet to Martin to African dance, now doing salsa. I'm on a salsa dance team, so yeah, I'm continuing dancing when I can get the time. And how that influ influenced it, I, you know, it influenced my science in a way that I didn't expect at first was, you know, to be a, a performing artist requires a lot of discipline, a lot of hard work, uh, stamina, and so forth. And that actually helped, and creativity, that actually helped my science generally, because you need all of those things to become a good scientist. Uh, it didn't actually influence the actual uh, uh, con concepts of my science until recently, uh, where um, this motor theory uh, came about. Because dancing, you got to learn to sequence movements and uh, imitate movements and so forth. And you require good learn motor learning skills to do that. And the question is, do humans have you know, better connections for arm motor neurons uh, that make direct connections from the cortex, the non-human primates, whatever, who might not learn how to dance. <laughs> uh, and I don't know the answer to that, but it's getting me to think about it. But an interesting discovery came out uh, from uh, Mark Hauser and some others is that they found that vocal learning species, particularly parrots, humans, and elephants, right, actually can learn how to synchronize to a beat <laughs> and dance uh, uh, when they listen to m human music, mm -hmm. whereas non-learning species, uh, chicken or a dog or whatever, or let's say when I call them limited learners, uh, they um, will uh, respond to music and run around and move around and so forth, but they apparently will not synchronize to a beat. Mm -hmm. So this is one idea that th I'm thinking, if I have to believe this hypothesis, is that after we evolve vocal learning or complex vocal learning, then maybe what happens after that is that those vocal learning circuitry invades our motor system to pull in auditory information to synchronize our motor movements better to the sounds that we hear than the non-vocal learning species. And that's the connection to courtship. Uh, right, a lot, a lot of vocal learners produce uh, dances. Even our non-learners will do movements uh, with the vocalizations as part of the courtship. But is it, it would be interesting to know whether there are species that do uh, learn courtship dances without vocal communication. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And people are looking for them to, to try to falsify this hypothesis. Right. And, and then, play some, then play some music for them. Right, right. See if they can dance. Right. <laughs> I have one last one. He answered that one quickly. <laughs> if, I, okay. if I may. 
Um, and the last one is also very quick, a little bit esoteric. Is I, I'm just interested in with all of the changes going on in government funding for uh, minority programs mm-hmm. in science. Um, you are a clear success story, um, having been funded by many minority programs as a student and throughout your career. Um, how do you see that having affected your career in general? Yes. Yeah, so so yes, I'm. I grew up as African-American, that's what, and, but I'm mixed, African-American, Native American, some European, as many people in this country. But yeah, I'm, I'm a minority in that sense. And uh, grew up in Harlem, had the whole poverty experience and so forth. And um, <clears throat> I uh, did not uh, think so much, you know, what my condition was relative to the rest of the country. I just have to say, I never grew up feeling like I was American. Uh, and one day... Uh, when I, uh, I I did well, I worked hard as an undergraduate student. I had uh, MBRS mark support these minority fellowships from NIH uh, and other uh, places, and uh, that you know helped me get into science. And one day I'm at Rockefeller University, where I, when I went to graduate school, I, I was successful in getting into some of the good schools. And uh, I hear the other students talk about how their parents got them a car when they graduated, or. You know, flew them to Paris for a, you know Europe for a summer long vacation, and I'm like, oh my goodness, you know what? Your parents buy you a car, you can go take a trip. You know, I'm helping my parents. You know, this this is a totally different experience for me. And it and then something similar happened when I was getting job positions. It really made me realize, you know what? These programs, I think they are advantages that many people don't take advantage of. They are advantages, but they are advantages that offset disadvantages that many other people don't have. And uh, I think that um, cutting them is going to hurt uh, the economy, it's going to hurt the culture. Because what I, I see is that not only do they help the people who have disadvantages that other people don't have, is that diversity in science, diversity in all walks of life brings success. So if you have a person a group of people running a cell phone company, and they're all white males who speak English and nothing else. It's hard for them to sell their product to other places on the planet. Okay, but if you diversify, have women, men, people from all back walk, walks of life speaking different languages, that company will be much more successful. And the same thing applies to science. And so they shouldn't be cutting them. They're going to they're going to cut scientific productivity if they cut those programs. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I have a feeling we could have gone on for another hour. This was an hour. But thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, This was Eric Jarvis uh, for Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you. You're welcome.